you're in prison. Concrete on three walls around you, metal bars on the one in front of you. And it's dark, and you're all alone, trapped. The thing about it is you're in there because you know and they know you're guilty. You did it, and you're caught. Caught red-handed, caught with your hand in the cookie jar, sayonara, curtains for you, whatever, whatever phrase you want to use, you know without a shadow of a doubt that the only person who did it was you, and the only person who's in prison now because of it is you. Imagine that feeling. Imagine what it must be like. Some of you are like, I don't have to imagine. I was there once. Like, don't tell me that, okay? Um, but imagine, imagine that, that knowing of being caught, of being guilty, of being stuck. This week, uh, I was sick, and holding true to that stereotype of men are the worst sick people on the planet, I was, I was writing my last will and testament, thinking that I might not make it out of this virus. I, I finally got to that point, you know this when you're sick, I finally got to that point when I couldn't watch another second of TV, all I wanted to do was move, but the thought of moving kind of made me want to die more, so I just kind of laid there, and I found on my phone, I found this podcast series called Ponzi Supernova, and it was this six-part series on the story of Bernie Madoff. And for some of you, that name strikes a chord, but for others of you, you might not remember. Bernie Madoff was convicted in 2008 of running the world's largest Ponzi scheme. And, and Bernie Madoff took hundreds of thousands of people for billions and millions of dollars in the course of a Ponzi scheme that he ran over decades. And here's, here's a really quick synopsis of what a Ponzi scheme is, because I know most of you probably just kind of need a refresher. A Ponzi scheme is basically, if I were to come to you and say, I can take your $10 and turn it into 19. And you'd say, okay. So you give me $10, and now I have to turn that $10 into $19 to give back to you. So what I do then is I go to two other friends, and I say, I can take your $10 and turn it into 19 So I take their $10, and I keep it, and then I take, your, and take part of that $20 and turn it into $19 to give to you, and I keep some for myself. But then in order to pay them back, I have to go to four people in order to get enough money to pay them back and to make money. And it kind of just keeps going. You've probably heard of it called a, a pyramid scheme. They're, they're roughly similar, the same thing. But Bernie Madoff wasn't doing this with 10 and $20. Bernie Madoff was doing this with millions and billions of dollars. And so people all over the world were giving Madoff this money because he was guaranteeing people returns that no other investment could, and no one was bothering to figure out how he was doing it until the day came when the money ran out. And I, for, for the six episodes of the podcast, the most fascinating line that I heard happened early on in the podcast. And the narrator said, Madoff knew the only end to this scheme was either death or jail. He said there was never a point where he would be able to repay everyone enough to walk away from the scheme. He just had to keep going and keep finding more money and keep finding more people. Well, he ran into a problem in December 2008. You might remember December 2008 when the housing bubble crashed and the stock market tumbled and everything looked like it was going 
belly up. And you, you kind of remember because you know people started putting their money back in their mattress again and everyone was, was trying to get out of investments and trying to be scared. And Madoff quickly realized that no one wanted to invest even with him. And so suddenly the money stopped coming in. Worse than the money stopping coming in was people were calling asking for their money out. And John was calling, asking for his money that had gone to Susie, and Susie's money had gone, gone to Bill, and all the way down the line, and Madoff had no money, had no way to pay these people back, and he did the only thing he knew how, and he turned himself in. And he's currently in the middle of a 150-year prison sentence for all of the crimes that he committed in, in regards to his Ponzi scheme, which means, with good behavior, he'll be about 228 years old when he gets out. But as you listen to, to the narrator tell the story, as you listen to the interview over time with Bernie Madoff, you'll notice one thing, and, and I, I don't know the man's heart, so I don't presume to be the judge. But over and over again, and the narrator even makes this point himself, that over and over again, it seems as if Bernie Madoff is, isn't sorry he stole the money. He's just simply sorry that he got caught. There's even a story that he tells of a friend of his who he made $7 billion, and he called this friend from jail and said, that $7 billion you have, they're coming for it. And the friend, because of the shock of hearing that news, has a heart attack and dies instantly. And Madoff has been this man's friend for decades, and he tells him this, and Bernie Madoff tells the story about basically killing his friend over the phone, and he says, it's the cost of doing business. You see, Bernie Madoff had caused this storm all around him, and the only reason he was sorry for what he did is that he was sorry he got caught. If you're a parent or if you had brothers and sisters growing up or you're a normal person, you probably know the difference between, between being sorry it happened and sorry you got, you got caught, right? When you eat the last piece of cake and someone opens the fridge and says, hey, who ate the last piece of cake? You're not sorry you ate the last piece of cake. You're only sorry someone else got figured out it was you, right? Like, it was delicious. No? Okay, fine. You guys don't like cake. That's cool, too. When you get caught speeding, because some of you drive really fast down the double A, you're never sorry you were speeding. You're sorry you didn't look far enough ahead to see the police officer, aren't you? When you were a kid and your sister was crying because you hit her, you're never sorry you hit your sister. You're sorry that saying, shh, shh, you're okay, you're okay, it's okay, didn't work, and your mom's coming down the stairs, right? Maybe these are all from personal experience. Who knows? I don't know. But there's a major difference from being sorry that it happened and being sorry that you got caught. Because when you're sorry that it happened, you stop and look around. And you realize that however it was that you were running away from God, whether it was through an addiction, whether it was through a, a, a struggle, whether it was through a, a deception, whatever it was that caused you to run away from God, you finally stop and you look around and realize the storm that you've caused. And you realize all of the pain and all of the turmoil and all of the struggles of everyone closest to you, and you stop and think, I did that. I caused this. And this is when you realize very quickly that your life, in a way, is encapsulated by the story of Jonah. 
You see, the story of Jonah is the story of a guy who God calls to go from his home of Beth-Gareth to the town of Nineveh. And Jonah decides he'd rather go any direction other than to the town of Nineveh, so he escapes in a boat to the place that's as far as he can go, to a place called Tarshish. And while he's on the boat on the way to Tarshish, God sends a storm to stop that boat, and it's the storm so violent that all of the, all of the sailors and all of the, the deckhands have never seen a storm so scary, and they're throwing cargo overboard. They're praying to gods they don't even know exist. They're doing everything they can to stop this storm, and Jonah looks around and realizes that God sent this storm to stop him. And so then this moment comes when Jonah goes to the guys and he says, throw me overboard. And you can imagine what it would be like to have these big burly sailors going, one, two, three, and hurling you overboard. And you can imagine that moment, your life flashing before your eyes as you're diving into this wild sea, thinking, this is it, God's about to kill me, I'm dead, and smack, you hit the water. And then as the boat sails off into the distance and you're just kind of floating in the water there and you're thinking, okay, what's next? And then before you know it, you're Jonah and this giant fish comes and just swallows you. And again, your whole life flashes before your eyes. This moment's going on when you realize everything you knew is falling apart. Everything you knew is happening and then you're in the fish and it's just plain dark. Now, I know for a fact, because I, I, I know this, that there are some of you in this room who don't believe this story to be true. That there are some of you in this room who might not believe any story in the Bible to be true, but especially if you were to pick one, there's no way a fish is eating a person and they're staying alive. But I, I want to I ask you to do something for me today. If you don't believe this story to be true, I want you to suspend your disbelief for the next 15 minutes. Because we believe that God spoke the universe into existence. Everything that is around you came because God said, and it happened. And so we believe that God could have either made a fish big enough or modified a fish or, or did something to the point, or maybe he even shrunk Jonah to the size of Nemo. I don't know. But he could have done something to make it possible for Jonah to be swallowed by a fish and then live inside that fish for the next three days. Because that's what happens to Jonah. We don't know what happens for most of the 72 hours, but you can imagine kind of like, like the stages of grief as he's in the fish, right? First he's in denial, and he's like, I'm not in a fish. I'm not in a fish. This is not real. And then he kind of moves to like bargaining and anger and all, all of the other stages. But over the course of this 72 hours, you can imagine how his life is kind of changing right before him, don't you think? And you can imagine how at first he's scared. And he's just afraid. And he, he realizes that he did this to himself. He has no idea what's happening. He has no idea what's going on around him. But then he quickly starts to realize maybe things are different. And then what happens is the most interesting verse in all of the Bible, in my opinion. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of a fish. I mean, I've prayed from some interesting spots. I pray from the stage, I pray in my office, I pray at home with my kids. I may or may not have prayed on a football field before. Some of you may or may not be praying on a basketball court this week. Like, you know, it just depends. But, but everybody's prayed from an interesting spot in their life, but none of you can ever say, I prayed from a fish. 
But inside the belly of the fish, Jonah prayed. He had spent three days and three nights living inside this fish, and he quickly came to realize, I only have one hope. And so he starts to pray. And so here's what I want to say to some of you. Some of you know the feeling of being at this version of rock bottom. Yours isn't a fish, but you can remember a time when you prayed out to God for help in an alley. You can remember a time when you cried out to God for help in the middle of a hotel room that you can't quite remember how you got there. You can remember a time when you called out to God for help in your office stuck in a situation that you realize is only going to end either in death or prison for you. You can, you can remember a time when you cried out to God in the hospital room or wherever it was where you found yourself at rock bottom. And I want you to know that if you've ever thought, this is it, God has officially abandoned me. This is it. But your story looks more like Jonah's than you may know. Because this is where Jonah finds himself three days in to the belly of the fish. Lost, scared, and afraid. Jonah had spent days running away from God, and the entire time God is chasing after him, not to get him, not to punish him, but to rescue him. And Jonah, day three at the end, finally starts to realize that God isn't after him to punish him, but God is after him to rescue him. And this is what Jonah prays. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, but I shall again look upon your holy temple. You see, Jonah uses the word sheol there, but the word that we would use is hell. And Jonah cries out to God and says, I realize that I have descended into the deepest, darkest pit of hell. I realize that I am in a place where no one could be more miserable than I am at this very moment. And what does he say? He says, the only way I can get from this is for you to save me. And some of you know about your own personal place of Sheol. You know about it because it's the day that your spouse walked into the house and said, you know, I I really just don't love you anymore. You know about it because it's the day you got the bank statement in the mail and you realize there is no way the bills are going to be paid and you made a decision that is far beyond the desperate you ever want anyone else to know about. You know about the depths of Sheol because you've literally heard the doors of a prison cell close behind you. You know about the depths of Sheol because the doctor said there's nothing else we can do. You know about the depths of Sheol because the pain and the anguish around, of everyone else around you was just too much for you to bear. And you know about it because you're starting to realize, maybe for the first time, that there's only one choice. Because Jonah realizes it in the pit. 
Jonah realizes here in the depths of Sheol that he only has one choice. He says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed forever upon me. But you, God, he says, you brought my life up from this pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, sacrifice to you. Salvation belongs to the Lord. From the depths of his deepest, darkest moment, Jonah cries out, God, you, you can save me. You can save me from this moment. You see, last week we started talking about running away from God. We said you can run from God, but you cannot outrun God. And it's amazing to me, if you had the vantage point I did, of how many people's shoulders started to drop. Not because they realized they could stop running, but because for so many people, the God who's chasing after them isn't a God of love and mercy, but he's a God of wrath and vengeance. And so for so many people, when they hear that God is chasing after them, they visualize a God with, with a whip and a chair trying to punish them. They visualize a God chasing after them to hold them accountable for everything they've done. They, they, they visualize a God who's chasing after them just to hurt them more. But I, I'm telling you, Jonah realized something in this moment that I hope and pray that you can realize too is that the God who's chasing after you is not, is not the God who's looking to punish you further. But it's the God who wants you to stop running so that he can rescue you. There's a preacher named Tommy Oaks who tells, who tells stories better than anyone you've ever met, and he tells this story of a, of a preacher friend of his who had three sons, and this preacher friend had spent his entire life in this small college town, but the first son died of a, of a childhood illness, so he was down to just the two, and one day the two sons, aged 17 and 18, were walking down the street in their small college town, and the one saw a friend on the other side, and without thinking, just sprinted across the street and got hit by a car. So now all, that's, all that was left was the one 18-year-old son. And he went to college, and knowing, you know, that he was home and could be there, he, he went to college there in their small town. But the burden and the, and the weight that he carried of being the only son of this preacher became too much for the boy. And he had tried his whole life to be a model citizen and a, and a preacher's kid and do everything he could, but the reality was that the college life was too tempting for him. And the wild parties that he had no idea happened in his town drew him in, and, and he started living that life. And well, in, in a small town, people talk. And word was out that the preacher's kid was the wildest one. And word was out that he was the ringleader, and he was the one causing the problems. 
And so as, as things like this tend to happen in this family, it drove a divide between the father and the son. And the son stopped coming home, and he made sure that where his dad was, he wasn't. And things got really crazy the son's junior year. It had been three years or so since he had been home to see his family. And everything that he did was reported back to him by other people. His his parents' lives were miserable, even though he was miles away. Even though he wasn't in their home anymore, he made them miserable just by the rumors that he was allowing to start in his name. People called for the pastor to be fired from the church. They called for the son to be arrested. They called for, for everything that you would think of gossip in a small town about a wild child and the problems that he's causing. And one night in the middle of the night, the pastor's phone rang. And a voice said, your son is in jail. So without hesitation, the pastor threw on some clothes and he drove down to the city jail expecting to see his son there. And instead, what he saw was nothing. And the jailer said, we haven't seen your son And they called around to the other cities and the other counties, and there there was no sign of his son. And the father was was furious. He was furious because he knew this was always going to be the end for his son anyway. He was furious because he knew about the anguish and the turmoil that he had caused him and his mother. He knew about all of this pain. He knew about all of this sorrow, and he was just angry. So he decided to go to the boy's apartment where he knew he was, probably with his friends, and they probably had pulled this prank on him, and his dad was just angry. And so he goes across town to his son's apartment and he peeks in the window and he sees there on the, in the living room on the couch his son asleep. And he reaches for the door and it's unlocked and he creeps into the house and he stands there in the living room just a few feet from the son who for the last three years had just ruined his life and turned it upside down and thrown it for what it was into something a, in some sort of disaster. And the, the story goes that he opened his mouth to just give it to his son one time and tell him what he's done. But then something came over him. And instead of screaming, instead of shouting, instead of pointing fingers, the dad just gently walked over to the son, brushed his hand across his cheek, and kissed him and said, Son, Your mother and I miss you. Please come home. And he walked back out and didn't expect to ever hear from him again, but he knew that he had to. Well, the next morning there was a knock at the door, and the son said, do you guys mind if I eat breakfast with you? And as the days and weeks went by, the son son started coming home a little more and a little more and a little more. And finally, after a couple of months, the dad said, son, I, I got to know. And he said, what changed? And he said, dad, you know that night you came to my house? And he said, you knew about that? And he said, dad, I was, I was sleeping on the couch because I was having trouble falling asleep. He said, I've been having trouble falling asleep because I've been feeling guilty. I've been feeling guilty because I know what I did to you and mom. And I know about how I, I'm your last son that's still living, and, I'm, and I've caused you all of this shame and embarrassment. And, I, and he said, I, I thought maybe the only solution for me was just to end it all that night. 
And he said, so I was laying there on the couch feeling guilty, thinking about how miserable I'd made everybody in the house, thinking about how no one probably wanted me anymore, thinking about how it was over for me. He said, and Dad, and then I heard you come in. He said, I wasn't sure who it was, but I pretended to be asleep, thinking, well, maybe they'll just take my life for me. So, but as soon as you got closer, I smelled your cologne. I knew your scent. He said, I almost jumped when you brushed your hand across my cheek because I thought, he's the one that's going to get me. He said, Dad, I haven't for a moment, and I never will forget the words I heard from your mouth when you said, son, we miss you, and we love you. Please come. He said, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm sorry for the pain and the hurt and the turmoil that I've caused this family. And he said, I want to come home. And he said, and you've let me. And there was a warm embrace and everything was back to the way it had been. You see, the pastor said that in that moment when he was standing over the couch of the son who had caused so much pain, when he was looking at the sleeping face of the son who had caused him so much heartache, he said he realized that an all-knowing God, that an all-seeing, all-loving Father had seen all of his pain, had seen all of his turmoil, had seen all of the hurt that he caused, and instead of saying, you deserve to spend eternity in the pit of Sheol, you deserve to spend eternity in hell, he sent his son. Because in your lowest moment, God is there, stooping down to kiss your cheek, and remind you that he is right here and will never give up on you. You see, we can run from God all we want. But the reality is, is that he sent his son to chase us. And he didn't chase us with a whip. He didn't chase us with a rod. But he chased us to the cross. And it's there on the cross that he said, I know the pain and I know the storms that are going to come in your life. But regardless of those storms, regardless of that pain, Jesus is coming to die for you and for me. So that we don't have to know the eternity of Sheol. Here in just a moment, the men are going to pass the bread and they're going to pass the cup. And the bread represents, as Jesus told us, his body broken for us. The blood represents his blood, or the cup represents his blood poured out for us. But here's what I want you to know. Is that for some of you, you've been running away from God for a long time. And it doesn't matter how far you've gone, it doesn't matter how many years you've run, what I want you to know is that all you have to do is do what Jonah did in the fish, is do what the son did on the couch, and simply decide to stop. Because the moment you decide to stop, what you do is a fancy church word called repent. And the moment you decide to stop and repent, you turn around and there is God. Saying, please come home.
And for some of you, it's time to make a decision like the one Jada made today. To say, I'm not going to run anymore. Today is the day that I'm coming to you and saying, I give my life to you. Today is the day for you to say, I don't want to run anymore. As they pass the bread and pass the cup, make that decision today to say, I'm not going to run. I'm just going to turn around.